Southern Soul Livestream is a weekly talk show and music hangout where the hosts learn your name and just might remind you of a favorite relative. We spotlight fascinating people, discuss current events, and pay special attention to lifting up generations. So if you want to know more, learn more, be more, or just be, Southern Soul Livestream is the place for you. Join us every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Just log on, kick back, and experience the eclectic vibe. Check us out at soullivestream.com. Tonight's story is about the true story of Oklahoma Black Towns. We will be spotlighting some awesome historians tonight. Dr. Daryl Green, Dr. Trina Jackson. We will have inspiration from the story of Jessalyn Head and her late husband. We will also have a quilt historian, Beverly Kirk, give us some insight into this incredible history. But before we get started, let me set a backdrop. We did the survey and we talk about this history. Let me guys take you back in town, time of when this Indian territory in Oklahoma became a new state. There was a magazine, there was a newspaper called the Muscat Cimeter, and this is what it says. It was a black person-owned newspaper that proclaimed excitement and hope for black people in Oklahoma. Right the day before Oklahoma became a state, this is what it wrote. To our colored friends throughout the United States, we send you greeting. And the ad said, the Indian Territory in Oklahoma are now a new state. There was some excitement in this backdrop. There was opportunity. There was hope. As stated in the survey, Oklahoma was once home of over 50 black towns. Now, barely 13 remain. Tonight, we will discuss the role of black towns and other settlements in Oklahoma as social, cultural, and historical hubs, especially during the era of Jim Crow, segregation, and black codes. Starting out tonight, we have my brother, Dr. Dale Green. How you doing, brother? Let's get you spotlighted on the screen. I'm, I'm blessed. Uh, you played several of my songs, and, and, I, and I'm, ready, I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm fired up. Can I, hit a, can I hit a wall? What's going on? <laughs> That's all right. Well, thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for inspiring this and sharing with us so many of the historians to get us started tonight. You have taken a unique approach. I hadn't seen this before. But in your own time, in your own efforts, you started infusing research that's entitled The Marketing Strategy to Create Economic Empowerment and for these black towns. Tell us why you did this and how you got started and who you worked with along the way. Well, well Kevin, uh, a great, a great show. Uh, so uh, I just want to you know, give an honor to God. I mean, I, 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 in 2016, God led me to Oklahoma Baptist University uh, where I teach. I teach business and marketing. And uh, one of the things, uh, I was looking for a church and I found, uh, the church I found in Oklahoma City is remarkable. Uh, the uh, St. John Missionary Baptist Church, uh, which is uh, led by uh, uh, Major, uh, Major Jameson, Jameson. 
And uh, the reason why I say that is because I went to this church and I had never seen a church that had so many, so many role models. I mean, there we had two, we have two judges. I mean, we have, I mean, we have superintendents. I mean, we have all these professors. I had never doctors. I had never seen it in my life. I mean, and so I met, I want to give honor to, I met Andre, uh, the late Andre and, and Jesslyn ahead. Uh, they were they were there and they started talking about the, the Oklahoma black towns. I started, I started uh getting involved trying to you know be with them. I was just, I was just overwhelmed because I had no understanding of, of the Native Americans, the Trail of Tears, those black towns. So uh I had no idea. And uh I just want to give you a, a chapter, no, Nehemiah one. Uh, Nehemiah uh came back, heard, heard from uh, individuals, asked how, how the place that you live, how's it coming? And they told him all the bad news. He just weeped. And when and when I visited some of the towns and I just saw some of the history and all of these towns are dying, man, it it just broke, it just broke me down, man. And, and the, again, Andre Head, he's a super guy and his wife is, is amazing. And I and I and I from that point, and I just want to give a shout out to my students. And uh, my uh, some of my some of my students and, and colleagues there, but Oklahoma Baptist University allowed me to be myself. And in most, if you look at a lot of predominantly uh, uh, white institutions, you got OU here, OSU. No one, all these academic institutions have that ability. And so I tried. The first thing I did was I tried to get uh, my students who were young and eager. I tried to. Ha- I had them work with the heads, and I had my undergraduate students and my graduate students. And uh, my undergrad, my undergrad, my graduate students, uh, they started doing some research, and they left that there. And I was thinking, man, we need to do something with this. And I, and uh, some of the questions, I'm not a historian, I'm a business guy, and so I started looking at uh, a lot of a lot of the falsehoods about about the black towns, and nobody knew. A lot of my students didn't know about it. Most of the people in Oklahoma don't even know that the 13 black towns, which I was amazed. Uh, the, the lack of ignorance. I, I mean, I'm ignorant. I didn't know anything about that and their contributions. And we always get the narrative that those towns, if they know about it, that most Blacks things associated, they're inferior, not good. But uh, just like Greenwood, these places was thriving. And uh, just kind of quickly get get some of the history of this. Like I said, I'm not a his, historian, but we we go back to the the uh, the, the the Trail of Tears, and you had. So the, so the Native Americans they had slaves. <laughs> I did not did not know that they had slaves, and uh, from there uh, those slaves are free, and some of those slaves established those 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 towns. And uh, these things these towns were thriving, and one of the things you know that they were doing well, like I said, Guthrie uh, at one time was the capital of Oklahoma. I did not know that, and and they were doing so well, and so. Uh, I'd say the institution, the, uh, uh, the government, and other individuals—they tried to choke those, you know, those those towns, uh, you know, economically, you know, the Jim Crow, the black holes, or whatever. But th- those things choked it, and you know, we see uh, urban uh, revitalization. But all these things have done that, and so what I try to do is talk, uh, try to look at it from a standpoint: what what do those towns uh, need? And, and 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 that's what we talked about. And I had to the, to do the research. I needed to pull in some strength, and so Dr. Jackson's the entrepreneur expertise, 
and uh, uh, the ACBSP uh, uh, chairman, uh, Debbie uh, Glasper, I pulled those in because I needed help. And, and, mm -hmm. and most of the, if you think about most of the, the predominantly white institutions, they are not doing anything. They're yeah. not doing anything for these black towns or doing any research on that. So we feel, we have filled the gap. You know, we're not just doing the, we actually focus on the business, the marketing, to let you know these towns were thriving. Hmm. Okay. Well, awesome, awesome. Thank you for getting us started there and sharing us the backdrop. What I'd like to do next is go to Beverly. Miss Beverly Kirk, you got a chance to work with Jesslyn Head and her late husband on some of the research. Do you mind giving us a backdrop of how you got in started, what you do, and some of the work that you got to see in observing the Head family? And for many of us who have not met them, tell us who they are and what they did. Again, let me say good evening to you. I too, like Daryl, was enthusiastic. There was a young man named Hannibal Johnson who has written books and he held tours earlier in the mid-2015-16, uh, and I didn't hitch up with them. But when Andre Head came along, he did indeed sponsor a bus full of 40 to 50 persons, and he timed those bus trips that were filled in advance to go to the 13 Black towns to make it a learning experience such that there was a gumbo festival annually in Grayson, Langston University would have their football season or other significant events. Rennie'sville has an annual jazz festival. And so we stayed late into the night and well into the morning because this was a time that we learned what these towns had to offer, as well as uh, the Bowley Rodeo is held annually in May. So in our visits, we were trying as well to highlight the high points of the historical significance of these 13 remaining black towns. And they label them as um, HBT, Hold on, I've got a few things going. And uh, the HBT historical black towns and the visits each time were just to the point that we learned a lot in what we did and were able to do. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, tell us about your project, um, because you're not only a historian, you're a, a person who quilts, right? Okay. Well, when I heard Andre said, he was onto something and he thought he might need someone. Okay, quilting became, and you can see how excited I get. But nevertheless, to learn about a town, females and women were doing the cooking, the sewing, and that created bonds of friendship that you can carry on from generation to generation to generation. You may be familiar with the G's Benz quilts, and that was an isolated community that the craft was taught. But quilt making is so much more than a backing, a body, the backing, the front, and the batting. It's where women sit 
and they're able to share stories, share heartaches. I've quilted with women who've been married 50 years and they, I was looking for, how did you do it? While we sat there and cut fabric and sewed it together and matched the colors. I also went to these towns looking for women that would create significant markers from their town's history. If it was cotton, if it were mayors, because many times you can post a picture on a quilt and then embellish it. So our goal was to obtain 13 quilts that would be representative. And I myself quilted a quilt that contained pictures of these 13 towns in my own regard of how I saw them. And um, it's a continuing goal to grasp what the town was about. Those quilts traveled when they moved, but they were for utilitarian purposes and have since been lost and used up. But you have that same creative spirit in women and daughters and others that left that community. One thing I wanna say, I'm also involved in the Metro Metropolitan Library that's going to do a search for quilts made before 1910. And I would like to see African-Americans bring some of these artifacts from under the bed that we can record if they were made out of feed sack or overalls, if they had wool battings, because blacks used whatever they had to make quilts that was bedding. But many times there were beautiful bits of lace and intricate handwork that applied to quilt that reflected the inner beauty of a woman that would sit down, dog tired, and say, I'm gonna do something for me and I'm gonna pass it on to my children. So that's awesome. where our enthusiasm continues to this day in awesome. seeking quilts that will tell a story of the people and their time and their place in history. Awesome. You know, I, I, I love that. I'll tell you why. Is As we get into the conversation, we'll discover that the essence and the nuance of what you're talking about is that passion and excitement around documenting history. And as we get into the session, I brought some other um, people to talk about what happens when we don't document our history. And I love the story that you tell, even though it's around quilting, it's your passion and your excitement that leads to documenting history in a way that it is not lost. Let's bring in another panelist, Dr. Trina Jackson. Dr. Trina Jackson, you also work with this team with additionally with the head family. And I see it's been posted about who the head family. We're going to talk more about them and share information and video about them later. So definitely hold tight. But Dr. Trina Jackson, tell us about your involvement in this project, in your perspective, what you do in your um, participation in documenting these Oklahoma black towns. First of all, I'm gonna make a quote that I always state specifically as it relates to us. Uh, black history should not be a mystery. Um, our history, in fact, is the evolution of change. We, in fact, were the innovators. We, in fact, were the creators. So Black Wall Street, we were the original Wall Street. But unfortunately, we had to assign color to all the amazing things that we have done. So again, we are American history. And it is important that people understand that. 
It was an honor to work with Daryl Green. And I thank him and his amazing students because these were not students of color. So they had an opportunity in all honesty to learn as well. So again, it's very important for all of us to share our history because we are truth tellers. We tell the truth. And Calvin, in our initial discussion prior to the taping, you know, we talked about all the things as creators we have been um, during slave times with music. In those churches, when we sang the gospel, we were singing about opportunities to escape because in fact, we were enslaved. And a lot of people don't realize when you hear that song, there's a message in our music. We in fact were in fact, actually reciting messages. And we continue to do that no matter what type of music it is. I wanna make a note for everyone that in 2021, I don't know why we had to wait a hundred years. You know, the United States actually recognized the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa massacre. So it's important that everyone know that. I would like to see, and we have a responsibility, every single person listening to share the article and that article will be available to everyone. But we have to speak these truths in the classrooms because they are not in the textbooks. So it is our responsibility, um, I guess, to maybe research uh, open educational resources, which is considered OER, to press our publishers to in fact include, can you believe the economic books do not actually talk about Wall Street? And again, why is it Black Wall Street? We were the original Wall Street. So we have a responsibility to really press our publishers to start updating these textbooks. Everyone's in arms talking about, are we gonna change what's in the textbooks? No, we just want the truth. And that's what we are. We're truth tellers. And my responsibility is to encourage, to uplift and continue the telling of our stories. Everyone in this audience, you have a story to tell. And it's important that we start telling our truths and applying that to our history. What I'm doing right now, and Kelvin, I want to extend a thank you to you, actually have a Zoom at Noon series. That Zoom at Noon is featuring Black entrepreneurs. So every Friday at noon, we're doing that. Um, so again, we have a responsibility to ensure that we're imparting. Why do I have to say our knowledge? Why do I have to say Black knowledge? Uh, we're Americans. But again, we have to do constant reminders because we have not been able to tell our truths and they have not been incorporated in the real truths of the Americas. Because we already know Christopher Columbus did not what? No, he didn't. No, he didn't. So again, as, as educators and as my audience is listening, we have a responsibility to start truly telling the real story. And we have to be active in that as well. So all we're trying to do is to draw attention to the truth, especially as it relates to what happened in Oklahoma. And I encourage everyone, you know, once the pandemic has waned, 
you know, we need to sponsor bus trips. We need to go and support Mrs. Head because she's still there. And we wanna give reverence to the late Andre Head. I had an opportunity to actually listen to them as they shared their remarkable research. And I want to extend to Dr. Green mm -hmm. the opportunity for me to be able to be a part of that. And I'm going to continue talking about and sharing, and we're gonna to continue to do additional research as well. So thank you, Calvin, for, for allowing me to say a few words. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Trina Jackson. So there's some mystery in the room and I wanna to speak to that. Who are the head family? Tamika, if you don't mind sharing the link of the press release that um, I share with you so the audience can have it, in that press release, you will find the research that has been done. So if you're looking for the historical numbers, the towns, the population, all of that is there. Take a look at the press release and look closely at the information um, of the, um, excuse me, the research publication that's also linked in the body of that document. Backdrop, the Head family. We're going to share a video with you guys a little later, but let me kind of give you a backdrop. Um, Andre Head, uh, great gentleman. Uh, we lost him last year. But before we lost him, he had started his own research nonprofit. Having grown up in one of the historically um, black towns, he began to feel a need to document what was unstated, as we all know. So him and his wife come together. They start a nonprofit and they go out and they start looking for grants. They start looking for ways to finance this information that not only they can go and visit the people who still live in those towns today, but they could show them pictures. They could show them history of their own towns. One of my favorite stories is they're showing a black and white picture that has been given color to one of the young ladies who still lives there today. And she's like, what? There was a bank that used to be in this town. My little one, you know, traffic stop sign town had an awesome bank in it. History that has been lost that no one even knew existed. So we, we give total respect to the Head family because if it wasn't for Andre having that passion to be a family historian, that we would not have this information and we wouldn't be here today. But we're not going to stop there because one of the things we're going to do tonight is not only talk about the problem, we're going to step into some of the answers. What's some of the answers? How can you have a black town history if you don't have family history? But hold tight, we're going to talk about that a little later. So let's go back to Dr. Green and Open Panel. Tell us some of the things that you guys kind of discovered about these towns, some of the aha moments, some of the great um, moments, some of the celebrations, because I, I give, honestly tell you when I told people, hey, you're going to do a show on Oklahoma and the towns. That's what they told me. Oh, you're going to do a show on Tulsa? I'm like, uh, and I'm thinking Tulsa. I'm like, no, 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 not Greenwood. Well, you said Oklahoma. You're talking about Greenwood. You're talking about Tulsa. So I'm like, OK, I'll put in the marketing messages, you know, you know, Black Wall Street, because that's what we know. But all of this history was invisible. The only thing people knew about was the tragedy of Black Wall Street. Let's talk about some good news. Anybody have any stories they could share about the black towns that they experienced? Go ahead. Well, let me let me just do a quick one. I just first I want to give a shout out to uh, uh, Miss Head. Uh, she was going to be here, uh, but she just had a. I mean, she's still caught dealing with the, her loss of her, her dear love husband, and she's also just lost two 
two, she lost a sister, uh, I think last week, a couple weeks ago, and just lost a, a niece. So she's she's really, we gotta pray for, we believe in prayer. Uh, so so one of the things, shout out to my wife, uh, Esther Lita, married, married over 30 years. And I always get brown in those. So uh, <laughs> I, I do, so, so as, as I am just blessed because all this history, I did not know, but, but because of the heads. And one of the things we first got to Shawnee, which is a rural area, there was a, there was a, uh, there was a, I looked in the paper, there was a renovation, that was the blues festival. Now I'm from Louisiana, so Southern University graduate. But I went, we went and took a trip uh, to, uh, to Renaissance. I'm just gonna let you know. I just want you to think about color purple. Think about color purple and them going into the places they weren't gonna go into. And I, I started driving and I didn't find anything. And all of a sudden in the middle of nowhere, it's just all these people are gathered around in Renaissance and you got, I mean, you got, I mean, I think thousands of people and then they got a little, uh, I call it a, a, a juke joint. <laughs> well, some of young, young people, I'll explain what a juke joint is later in class, but it was a juke joint and they were playing the blues. And what was amazing about this, what brings us together? There was food and there was music. So, so we spent so much time on what things that bring us apart, but I saw black, white, Asian in the middle of nowhere celebrating. And so, so that's that's what I think. I think is wonderful. If we, we but th- it's in the middle of, of of nowhere. So that's my story. I know uh, maybe uh, Beverly might have have some other ones because she she's actually uh, from the area. But that was my that was my glare in my mind. We had a great time in Renaissance. Yeah. Well, well, Beverly's working on her microphone. Beverly, just let me know when you're back. I'll share with you um, a story that I found through my research. One of the things I enjoy about these shows is the amount of research I do and the things I learn. I often, I had a fraternity brother who went to Langston University and I always knew, you know, that he's got multiple Langston universities, the Langston, right, as they say. And I never knew that Langston University is in the city of Langston, which is a historically black town. And I had an OMG moment. What if these other black towns throughout the United States had HBCUs? And I began to wonder how the city of Langston benefited from having an HBCU there. And maybe that HBCU of Langston University was what helped it make it through the Great Depression. But while we wait for Beverly to come back, let's begin to talk about something that other people may not realize. The other black towns throughout the United States. As I stepped into this research, I'm thinking about black towns, I'm thinking about Oklahoma, but all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, there are other black towns? And actually there are. Tamika, if you don't mind sharing in the chat the list of black towns throughout the United States, what did I discover? There are black towns scattered all throughout the United States that are right underneath our noses. Towns that we didn't even know about. Beverly is muted, so let me see if we can get her unmuted. Now so I'm unmuted. There you go. There you go. Welcome back. I wanted to say that uh, the Coltrane group of which um, Andre and Jesslyn formed, they sought to put highway with the State Department of Transportation and state leaders to put 
notable highway exit signs into Bowley, into Clearview, because you can drive for miles and not know, as Daryl said, right around the corner, down the side street, you'll get lost in the mud if a cow doesn't cross the street, but there are vibrant communities. Uh, there's a prison located next to Taft and they have paved street, but the town of Taft doesn't. So we now have uh, markers on our state highways that tell you the exit to go to Bowley, Clearview, Rennesville, Vernon, Tatum's has long been uh, established. The other thing they did was to set aside that there were maybe 60, 40 by 40 signs that were standing six feet tall that gave, they're all look alike, but each one of them tells the particular history, noting this as a black town, so that when you enter the town, you have a historical marker. So they were doing, I traveled with them to city hall meetings where they were trying to get the gym fixed up and trying not to lose a program to feed um, whatever the food program that comes to being time so that their municipality would remain vibrant. So there's work to be done that they are willing to ask individuals to assist. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I, I, I love that story. Um, it, it reminds me of the question. We now know these towns exist. We now know that there's a need. We now know that they're scattered all throughout the United States, right underneath our nose. Daryl Green, in your research, what was your goal to accomplish? How do you believe that these towns could be supported, should be supported, and why? Uh, great. Great, uh, great question. Now, one of the things that I always think, uh, so we have a think tank. I, I started a think tank called the Talent Chain Think Tank. And you, a lot of these people in the loop, they're black scholars uh, that get together, get, get together. And one of the things I think is that universities is a, is a, it could be a resource, yeah, but they, they don't wanna, most of them don't wanna spend time uh, helping, helping black communities. But it, I mean, it's, it's, it's a resource. I mean, it's, it's economical. But one of the things in, ter in terms of that, I think coming together, I say a single marketing plan, as uh, Beverly mentioned, you go down, to, like we're going to Rennettville, there's no signage. And in most of those towns, there's no signage. And if, you, if you're trying to get uh, to, you're trying to get to, like in Grayson, they have a gumbo. They're from Louisiana. Most of those folks are from Louisiana. They're, they're like my cousins. I mean, green, whites, blues, that's what we did to the plantation. We, did, we had, but a lot of those individuals came from Louisiana and they have a gumbo. Well, you're talking about you're talking about a place that I don't know maybe 100 200 people, and they're trying to service the whole, you know anybody who shows up. There's you know they have the mirrors good, but the infrastructure you know most of the people that's trying to do it you know they're 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 senior citizens, and so I just think bringing those things together. I think doing those resources and pulling together. I think of the towns. I'd say one unified marketing plan, and uh, I've seen this done in uh, South Carolina, South, South, South Carolina. Uh, in uh, Charleston, there's a tour. People come around, and I think I think these these towns are going going mainly survive tourism. It's going to be huge, and yeah. I think I think senior citizens that that like to travel uh, after COVID is down. Those individuals, uh, I mean, uh, one of the things that I think the heads are working on was the Green Book. 
watch the movie, and then you yeah. can talk to me. But watch the movie. But all of these places was tied into the Green Book. That that yeah. that. So those that, those are my I things. I think we could come together, have champions. But I just think you have to. If the towns don't. I mean, if the towns don't come together, I just I just think it's just not sustainable. Just because they don't have the, the infrastructure and don't have the financial resources. But if we can pull together like we like we've done in the past. I, I think that is that is that is what uh, could be could be successful for those for those terms. Yeah, I, I, let, I definitely. Let me just add. Let Go me ahead. just add, Dr. Green, because we're marketers as well, so we're always planning in advance. Um, again, my month of February is booked because I planned in advance, um, and our focus has to be on planning in advance. Um, I don't take one month out of the year to celebrate my people of color. I take every day, and everyone's heard this, 365 days. But now we really have to focus on Juneteenth is coming up, too. We can't wait. We have to start planning now to celebrate Juneteenth. Uh, for so many years, people were celebrating the 4th of July. That's not ours. Ours is Juneteenth, and we have to focus on that. For so many years, people would celebrate you know, women's voting rights. Women of color were not allowed to vote. So we have to understand our history and we need to know our history. And I wanna make a special note to our listening audience. People, you have to vote. You have to vote. It is critical now. Um, we're change makers, but I'm also a truth teller as well. Awesome, awesome. You know, I love that concept of planning to celebrate, planning for Juneteenth, planning for Black History Month. Dr. Green, you said something that segues to the next um, um, point that I think I want to bring out. As you can see in the research, um, Tamika put it in the chat. And if you got here, we'll put the links in the chat, and it also is going to be in the post notes of the show. But what we shared tonight is a story of the Head family, who were um, very instrumental in bringing, kickstarting this history in Oklahoma. However, in other cities and other areas, since we shared a list of national black towns, down in the southeast, there's what's called a Black Towns and Settlement Alliance. Um, I discovered they just had a session um, last week, and I missed it, but I want to give them a shout out. So, Tamika, if you don't mind sharing their link. I love their model, and I love what they did. They have educators. They have actually mayors from certain black towns who participate in their um, yeah. alliance. And what they do is they work together and they collaborate on education, awareness, and resources. One of the key things that the head was working on is tourism. Tourism and grants. As you do your research, you'll be discover one of the um, organizations that was offering grants was the National um, Parks and Recreation. So it's definitely going to, I always tell people, it's going to cost you one of three things, time, money, or creativity. But tourism is important, restoring that heritage, capturing those oral stories. And we're going to talk about that a little tonight because we have Miss Sandra Eady on here tonight, who is a genealogy specialist. And as we talk to Peter, we're going to talk about stories of what good looks like when we have seen solid, good family heritage kept safe. Because as I would say, if we don't have family history, we can't have town history. 
But let's step back for a second. Let's go ahead and go to the audience. But before I go to the audience with Q&A, what I would like to do is give the panel a chance to speak on anything that you had spoke on yet, because I know we had a panelist that couldn't make it because of personal things with the family. But is there anything that the panelists would like to speak on that we hadn't? Because what I want to do is open it up to Q&A before we step into our genealogy and family history experts. Let me just add quickly, Calvin, and I apologize because I didn't provide my link. I'm actually having a grant writer tomorrow on my Zoom at noon. So I host a Zoom at noon on Fridays, and I will have Allison Bax. Um, um, she has an Ask Alley Consulting, and she's a grant writer. So what I've been trying to do, again, is host people of color that have this expertise but I'll send that Zoom at, noon, Zoom at noon link to you so that you can share that with the listening audience. It's noon central standard time. Actually, um, Tamika, she's on top of it. She had already um, put it in the chat. I mean, we run a tight ship here. We got you. Yeah. So um, thank you for that. And Tamika shared that. And if anybody missed it, just ping her as the admin and she'll make sure you get that information. So let's go open questions for the audience. We've given you the backdrop. We're giving you the story. We're giving you the problem. What do you consider are some of the challenges? What do you feel that we could do to not only document this history, but to better understand and capture? And of course, the obvious question is, why is all of this important? Because I live on both ends. The place where I totally get it and also the other end where I don't get it. So all questions are fair. What do we have from the audience? If you don't mind, I'd like to ask a question. First of all, this is very uh, enlightening. Uh, I had typed in the chat that I had watched a special a few years ago on PBS about the African-American towns in Oklahoma. And, you know, this is something that we in other parts of the United States need to know about. I mean, like you said, I mean, they've nationalized about Tulsa, but there's more, like you said, to Oklahoma than Tulsa. The, the uh, you know, the 13 predominantly African-American towns. And, and this information, like I said, it needs to get out. Uh, so please try to, you know, direct us towards links on it, it whatever. So, and I would definitely like to share with my students because as I typed in the chat, I've been talking about Black Wall Street for the last, uh, my last 18 years of teaching at the community college. So now, uh, starting this semester, or if not this semester in the fall, I want to start talking about these 13 African-American uh, towns. So that's all I, I want to say on this. Yeah. And Peter, that's a great segue. Thank you. Um, and I'm definitely going to connect you with Dr. Green because I'm pretty sure that you guys, um, like mine, it can definitely benefit from some sort of alliance. Peter is our expert on um, Detroit history. He teaches um, history and um, civil rights um, at the university. But let's go to the audience. I got some questions to get us started, but I want to give another person a chance to, um, and we're open here, so um, whatever question you have, feel free to put it in the chat. If you, you put it in the chat or you can say it out loud, your choice. And while we're waiting on that question, I'm going to get us started with a question. Um, so Dr. Green, I'm going to position this one to you. What are your thoughts? on the implications of economic impairment for black American economics, based on this history that we have seen. So, you know, so often think, people, go ahead. No, go, no, go ahead, finish it. I said often people would, you know, be a bit 
hey, you know, if we have our own thing, if we had our own thing. The story of these black towns is the obvious reality. Yeah, we've had our own thing. But as you can imagine, based on the backdrop of Jim Crow, these black codes, what do you think this means to black American economic empowerment and some of the dynamics we, you know, see or could see? So, so I, think it's, I think it's important, even with my, my students. So I think uh, in terms of uh, blacks, I think there's a there's an inferior because because the culture is, you know, when you when you see excellence, you know, it, it's not it's not it's not Afro-Americans, you know, and, you know, you go with the, you look at I look at the book, the top 100 leaders. You might have Martin Luther King. So I think I think I think the history part of that for me, I'm just going to tell you, it's, it's uh, understanding the, 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 the 13 black towns or the 50 black towns and see what they had to go through, you know, and they were thriving. So here's the here's the thing I want to I want to make this this clear. Everybody always I'm a business guy. Everybody always talks about capitalism, and I'm a I'm a, I'm a capitalist person, but but in, in most cases, uh, for us, uh, it, it's been barriers have been put in place that you cannot be successful. And so I think that's why I think if you want to do something, if you want to do something, do it. Like I said, I looked at uh, I looked at the think tanks. There were there weren't there weren't any black think tanks. There was no bringing us together. So I think that we have to empower ourselves. Anyone who wants to, so here's what I tell people. Everyone that looks like me is not my friend and everyone that does not look like me is not my enemy. So if you down with empowerment, you know, and I, I think I think if we, you know, the Bible says the least of these. So I think for the United States is Afro-Americans. And so if you can, you can, you can get down uh, with this but I think it's the history part of it, just to know that we've come so 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 far along, and that 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 we don't have to be uh, we don't have to be the worker. We could actually be running. We could be actually running the business because the history says even when we were denied rights and privileges and and things taken away from us, we still managed to make it. So that's that's what I'm encouraged about looking at the history and saying, you know what, I can I can do this, uh, and and so that's what I'm encouraged about. That's why I think. But I think. You have to be an owner. I, I'm big on that. So I think, like, you look at the NFL; those guys complain. They're making, they're making. If we say in the trade, they're making a lot of cheddar. But it's the owners that really make the money. And so I think, as long as we are uh, a servant, then then we're not going to do it. So that's why I'm big into economic development, pushing the community, doing doing things. Anybody who wants to come along, great. But I, I'm, I'm not going to wait on, on people to for permission to make those things happen. Thank you, Dr. Green. I'm going to grab a question out of the chat. There was mention made that the history of Black Wall Street and the history of these Black towns needs to be entered into history books. But is there any interest from publishing companies? And if not, how can we rally and make this an opportunity to get this information published? And this is why I mentioned OER, Open Educational Resources. We have a responsibility to actually start a movement. And that's where you can go because those are free resources. So we have our, our 4T think tank group. And now um, we're going to have to do some focusing on that. So OER um, it's open educational, and that will allow us that opportunity 
but it takes time to do that. And we're gonna need um, collaborative research. And that's why I appreciate Dr. Green because he really has his students. And let me just state this, this is important. Um, it has to be all students. It can't necessarily be students of color because it's an opportunity for us all to learn about our history. Our history is American history, but we have to you know, clearly make people understand that our black history was not incorporated in our history books. So if we're able to start there, you know, that's a launching pad for us. Um, with all of our book publishers, you know, everyone's talking about, you know, uh, DEI and they're opening up the doors for everyone. Um, I, I take issue with that. Um, we are VPs, we are presidents. You didn't have to create a position for us. We've, we've always uh, been there, but this is where we have to start in all honesty. So, and I wanna, so let, I, let me um, dig into that for a second real quick, um, Dr. Green, because you, you, you mentioned that uh, twice, uh, um, Dr. Jackson, and I didn't get it the first time. OER, Open um, Educational Resources. And for the non-academics here, I think I'm picking up what you're putting down, right? It sounds like similar to an open forum or information can be published by anyone in certain places to where if we come together, do knowledge sharing and document the history, then we can publish it ourselves in a way that it can be digested. Now, I just did an interpretation, but can someone, you know, clean that up for me? Calvin, you were right on target. You were on target. You know you're an academic. You're right on target. Mm -hmm. But again, Dr. Green, we're going to have to pass this on to our um, four, yeah. our four T group, yeah. um, our think tank, yeah. to start focusing on it. And I encourage others to to do the same. It should not be limited to one particular group. We can all start doing this. However, you have to have credible references. In order for this information to be published, to our advantage, Dr. Green actually has a relative who is an expert at this. So, you know, that's to our advantage. I'll pause Wait, Dr. There Green, that sounds like we should definitely do some OER type conversations. Go ahead, Dr. Green. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the one thing, so I think, I think the Kevin, I think the question is, is, is might, might be kind of wrong. So, my thing, I'm not trying to go to a publisher, and I know it's, it's not ac academic. That's not what I'm supposed to say. But what, I, what I'm saying, I have I have two two textbooks that are by uh, a, a traditional a publisher. They're not going to publish what I want to do. So I I created my own publishing company. I do my own thing. And maybe the academics they slight, they think that's bad. But I'm saying if the information is out there. So what I'm saying is there are other routes. I think like the young people. You got social media. You got all these new platforms. Open open resources. We're publishing, we're doing academic, we're doing, we're writing academic things, focusing on a niche. The goal is to focus on a niche and, and people that are interested. So, so my thing is I'm not gonna wait. I'm too old now to be waiting for permission. I'm I'm tired of that. So awesome. if I if so if I think there's something that needs to be done, I need to publish something, I need to, I need to get the information out, I need to form the groups. We just do it. I don't need, I don't need permission. So. I love that response, Dr. Green, because it alludes to something that I've definitely been told about publishing companies, is that sometimes those places aren't for us or they don't care about our message. As we segue into the next thing, that's actually a perfect segue, I want to bring in um, and spotlight Peter 
and Sandra, because they're going to talk into some of the practical things they've seen. But before I step into them, I just want to say thank you to our Oklahoma historians. And you guys hang tight, because what we're going to talk about now is not only the problem, but I often say what good looks like. And it's not about the silver bullet, but it's about sometimes you have a small niche that's doing it, and we can all benefit from that. Let me read to you guys the backdrop. In the Washington Post, Norman Crockett writes about his book, The Black Towns. And he says, there was not much documented about the daily lives, aspiration, and fears of people living in such towns as Blackdom, Hobson City, Alabama, Allensworth, California, Wrightonsville, Oklahoma, because the residents failed to record their experiences and whites were not interested in preserving and collecting material on black towns. You know, people often say, why is black history so negative? Why is it so sad? Well, as I did the research for the show, I discovered that it's typically when a slave ship sinks. That's documented. Or when a black Wall Street burns down. That's documented. But what about the hopes, the dreams, the excitement, the passion? My belief is that's on the onus of others, that being us, to document that. So up first, we got Peter Boyking. You guys already had heard Peter tonight. Peter, if you don't mind introducing yourself and tell us about what you do, and more specifically, tell us about the legacy of Johnson Whitaker, one of the first African-Americans at West Point University. Uh, once again, Calvin, thank you for the invitation and to the other panelists, I'm enjoying this uh, very intellectual dialogue. I'm a native of uh, Detroit, Michigan, uh, born and raised. Uh, I went to Hampton University where I received my bachelor's in history. Also, I have a master's in secondary education from Howard University and also have a master's in public relations from uh, Michigan State University. I've been in the field of education now for 22 years. Uh, I started off as a long-term sub when I was finishing up my uh, graduate work at Howard. I um, long-term sub in the uh, Montgomery County, Maryland school system right outside Washington, DC. Then I went over to Virginia, it was a Falls Church. And uh, upon graduation from Howard, I uh, landed a job teaching ninth grade uh, world history, 10th grade world geography at uh, Woodbridge High School in Prince William County, which is about uh, 25, 30 minutes south of DC on I-95. Been up and down 95, and passed right through where I used to live. Came back to Detroit in January, 2004. I've been at Wayne County Community College District where I teach uh, basic college survey courses in uh, African-American history, US his history, and uh, world civilization or world history. And uh, I enjoy history with a passion. Uh, it, it is uh, definitely my lifeline. And uh, we're gonna talk tonight about Johnson Chestnut Whitaker. And actually there's an Oklahoma connection in my family. I'll get to that uh, towards the end of my presentation. Uh, my great-great-grandfather, and this is on my dad's side of the family, this is my paternal grandmother's uh, uh, grandfather. He was born a slave, 1858. 
in uh, Camden County, South Carolina. If you're not familiar with South Carolina, Camden County is right outside the capital, uh, Columbia. He was freed at age eight. And then when he started to go into his educational matriculation, he went to a high school that uh, the University of South Carolina had during Reconstruction. So a lot of opportunities for African-Americans during Reconstruction. He took, uh, I think, some, some college courses. He was just a, a phenomenal, uh, exceptional student, straight A student. So there he befriended uh, Richard Greener, who was the first African-American to get a bachelor's degree from Harvard in uh, Massachusetts. Dr. Du Bois was the first to get a uh, African-American to get a PhD, but uh, Richard Greener was the first African-American to get an undergraduate degree from uh, Harvard. Also, he uh, uh, went to Howard Law School, taught at Howard Law School, and then he worked in the office of the United States uh, as a clerk for the U.S. Comptroller. So uh, my great-great-grandfather told uh, Professor Greener he wanted to go to West Point and serve in the military. He wrote a recommendation letter. He got in. So now he enters West Point in the fall of 1776. Let's look at the date here, 1776. So this is nearing the end of Reconstruction. And as you can imagine back then, there weren't that many African-American cadets there. Uh, there was George Washington Murray. And of course, there was Henry Ossian Flipper, the first African-American cadet to graduate from West Point. He and my uh, great-great-grandfather actually room, uh, Flipper came out I think around 1876, 1877. So after Flipper graduated, my great-great-grandfather was the lone African-American cadet at West Point. And he was seen basically as a non-factor there by the white cadets. They uh, would spit in his food in, in the mess hall with orders. They would see him as the invisible man uh, for recreation. Uh, they would uh, have sparring matches in the gym and he couldn't really fight them physically like in a major boxing match because it, it would lead to expulsion. He received death threats. He received one that said, Cadet Whitaker better keep awake a friend. So he was supposed to graduate in uh, May of 1880. So two months shy of what would have been his graduation, he was found tied with his hands like this to the, uh, thank you, Ms. Barnes for posting information my great-great-grandfather. Um, he was found with his hands tied uh, to the bedstead, like, you know, posted on a bed on the floor, bleeding profusely with pieces of glass from a handheld mirror by uh, his earlobe. And they actually cut off part of his earlobe. So they had concocted this uh, nefarious thought that maybe he was trying to commit suicide. And he brought in Richard Greener, as his defense, along with Daniel Chamberlain, who was white, he was abolitionist and former governor of South Carolina. They had moved the court-martial from West Point, 100 miles south to New York City, you know, just to protect everybody and just for, you know, a different venue. And they brought in all these psychologists, and I mean, they, they, it was just like really a bunch of fallacies about my great-great-grandfather. Uh, the psychologist was saying that uh, one said, uh, Af uh, Africans were born to obey rather than command me. They were <laughs> meant to be docile. And uh, no white cadet really uh, sided with my great-great-grandfather. It's like they were saying a white cadet would never resort to such, you know, a, a low uh, type of, uh, 
you know, malicious activity. So he was found guilty and faced uh, two years in a federal prison labor camp. But President Chester Arthur overturned it. He went on back to South Carolina, got married, had two sons, Johnson Whitaker Jr., Miller Whitaker. And uh, my great-great-grandmother's name was Paige Harrison. Uh, then she became Whitaker. And, uh, oh, I forgot to mention one thing. My great-great-grandfather was born on the Mulberry Plantation, which was the largest plantation in South Carolina and one of the, the largest in the South. So getting back to my uh, story, he went on to Claflin University in uh, Orangeburg, HBCU, got a law degree. He taught in the Industrial Arts High School at uh, South Carolina State because, you know, HBCUs had, I'm sure, I know Langston probably had this, you know, high schools for African-Americans since the schools were segregated. And then he practiced law in Sumter and Charleston. And then he decided before he left South Carolina, uh, he went into education. So then he moved to Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, uh, around 1900. And he moved into all-white neighborhood. He was the first African-American to move into all-white neighborhood in Oklahoma City. And then pretty much by the time my uh, great-grandfather's brother had come back from World War I, the antagonism really had escalated. Because as you all know, after World War I, when the veterans came, Black veterans came back, they were lynching African-American men and antagonizing them. And this is all before, you know, the decimation of Black Wall Street and Rosewood. So a white newspaper reporter, this is about 1920, year before Black Wall Street was destroyed, came to uh, their home in outside of Oklahoma City. And he asked him, why are you staying here? So he actually told the white newspaper reporter about what happened at West Point. And uh, the white newspaper reporter used the headline, he cabled in by a phone, because they didn't have computers back then, of course, said, Negroes have arsenal. As a result of that, the attack stopped. And uh, so he would then return to South Carolina and die there. He did go around to speak somewhat about the uh, West Point incident, but didn't do it really aggressively. So now we fast forward to 1972, well, late 60s, 1972. Dr. John Marzlack, who was an historian, at that time, he was at a small private college in Erie, Pennsylvania. I'm sorry, I can't think of the name of it right now. Uh, he was at the National Archives, and he was, he's a, a Civil War historian, and he stumbled upon the, I think it was 10 to 12,000 page transcript of my great-great-grandfather's court-martial. It was so intriguing, he did research, looked up my grandmother in Detroit, flew out to Detroit, interviewed her, and said, I'm going to write a book on it. It was called Court Martial, 1972. Really wasn't in a lot of bookstores, pretty much in libraries. We fast forward 11 years to 1993. Movie called Assault at West Point it was uh, filmed, and the book was retitled in conjunction with the film. And it starred Samuel Jackson as Richard Greeter. Daniel Chamberlain, you probably remember from Law and Order, he was uh, uh, Daniel Chamberlain. And Seth Gilliam played my great-great-grandfather. It was shot at the Virginia Military Institute. Actually, my grandmother was a consultant and actually uh, had a part in the film. So the film is on YouTube. Uh, when I finish speaking, I'll put the YouTube link. It's free. And she was an extra in the film, especially in the court martial scene. So that garnered the attention of the uh, political brass in South Carolina. Uh, James Clyburn, who you all know, uh, had just come into Congress at that time. He was the first African-American congressman elected South Carolina since Reconstruction. Uh, Jim Spratt, who was also a Democrat, Mike Clyburn. And then you had the two senators, Ernest Hollings, former governor Democrat. And then you had 
uh, Strom Thurmond. So all four of them got together, they put bills in the House and the Senate, and they said, we need to have some type of reparations for the family. And the reparations was that my great-great-grandfather would get a posthumous commission as a second lieutenant in the military, which is what he would have earned had he had graduated that May. I'll never forget, I was uh, home in the summer of 95 after my first year at Hampton University. That June, my dad got a call about this time at night, nine, by nine o'clock Eastern time. It was the White House. They said, President Clinton wants to have a ceremony for the family. We'll pay all expenses. Uh, my parents and I and some cousins were here in Detroit. My grandmother at that time I remarried was in Los Angeles. They flew her in and my uh, grandfather, uh, Charlie Piquet uh, in from Los Angeles. And uh, my cousin Jason Waddell was at Hampton. He took the train up. They brought everybody together in DC. We had two African-American army uh, escorts who were from, I think, uh, Fort, uh, Fort Meyer, which is right next to the uh, Pentagon, picked us up from National Airport in DC, stayed at Crystal City, took us to a restaurant uh, right by National Airport on the waterfront. Next day was like a total whirlwind. Uh, my dad and Dr. Marslack, I went with them. They were on CBS this morning, rode with them to the studio, came back. Then the whole family went to the Pentagon, gave us a tour of the Pentagon. We had a private luncheon. And then after the private luncheon, uh, we were taken to the Pentagon, I mean, sorry, to the uh, White House and uh, met President Clinton in the Oval Office and had a receiving line. Then we went to the Roosevelt Room where the ceremony took place. And also, President Clinton gave back the Bible that my great great grandfather had. That was his diary at West Point. Everything that happened at West Point to him, uh, all of the attacks were documented that the court, the court martial had seized the uh, Bible and it been... Go ahead. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, the court martial, uh, they had seized the Bible and it was the National Archives used. My dad tried to get it out because at the time my father was a lawyer. He also asked Congressman John Conyers to get it out. So then the White House said, don't worry, we'll give the Bible. So the Bible's given back to the family. We also have an uh, actual commission. And uh, the Bible was taken to South Carolina State University where Miller Whitaker, my great-great-grandfather's, uh, one of his sons, was the third president. It was there. But then, interestingly enough, when my dad and I went to inter my grandmother's ashes in 2011 at the family plot, they had moved the, uh, the Bible to... Uh, uh, local bank deposits. My dad and I went to a private room to look at the book. So I'm trying to get the family together now to see if South Carolina State doesn't want the Bible. We're going to try to get that Bible sent to the, Nas to the uh, National African American Museum in D.C. where people from around the world can uh, uh, appreciate it. So, so that's pretty much, in a nutshell, the, the story of my uh, great-great-grandfather. OMG. Thank you, Peter, for sharing that story. We have one more person um, as we step into our agenda, we run a little long, but this information is so awesome. I appreciate the patience of everyone, and we're going to get to it. We have one more person we want to hear from, but first I want to just say thank you, Peter. One of the questions I had for you that I'm going to skip the other questions because you did it so well, you answered all my questions, okay. is I can only imagine what you have learned about African-American history, the history of our country. Mm -hmm. through the lens of your family. Do you mind just giving us a quick, you know, 30 seconds of, you know, what, what have you personally walked away with understanding, you know, I guess the importance of this documentation and how, I guess, uh, say, how tricky it can be 
any any life lessons or any observations you personally? Well, my takeaway is, I mean, you know, my family is one of resilience. I mean, we this is definitely, I think, I I, I just talked about this today. I, I'm teaching a dual enrollment class at a high school in Canton, Michigan, outside of uh, uh, Detroit. And these are 11th graders. I mean, they were so intrigued about it. So I want to show them that, you know, you can come back. I mean, it's just like First Lady Michelle Obama said, when, when, they, when they go low, you can go high. So when they went low against my great-great-grandfather at West Point, he said, I'm going to go higher. And he did. He was, I mean, a man of versatility. He was, uh, you know, got a law degree and he got uh, a degree, you know, uh, he went into education. And that speaks immense volumes going from being a slave to going to military academy, being almost left for dead, and then just coming back and contributing to your community. And yes, this information is just so much, there's just so much information out here to find. I actually went to the archives uh, two summers ago. My wife and I were in DC and uh, I spent the day there and the gentleman was an African-American John of the archives. He was so elated to hear that I, when I told him what I was looking up, he said, I watched that movie. I said, I'm his great, great grandson. And he was just so elated. He, he gave the royal treatment for me. So whatever you need, you know, whatever. Now I didn't look at all 10,000, 12,000 pages of the transcript. I've been in DC for a couple of months. Uh, I just looked at a few pages, made some copies and took back to my uh, dad. But just reading the verbiage in it, it's like I just told you some language. I mean, it, it just was so infuriating how they made, they demonized my great, great grandfather. And uh, like I said, history is, is so important. I mean, you, look, you go to my uh, parents' house I and mean, it's like a museum with all these <laughs> information. And you talk about, I, I was looking at one of your questions earlier, what are the effective ways to document the history? Uh, I think to scan, like I'm trying to, with my dad, he's got so many pictures and, uh, you know, uh, I'm trying to get him to digitize it, but I'm at the point now, I just don't really have the time with my busy work schedule, doing speaking engagements and doing consulting. I'm going to probably, we'll probably have to hire somebody professionally to, to scan all these photographs and documents because I, I want to make sure, you know, when, when he uh, goes on that I have, you know, access to it and so do the, you know, other uh, uh, family members. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Peter. Sandra, you are our finale. Thank you for being so patient. One thing I appreciate about the work you've done as we come um, close to a close is that this is what you do. I enjoy the title and one of the things we're definitely going to have to do is, as we kick off our Southern Soul workshop series, to have you come back and teach families how to do the things that Peter is talking about. Now, Sandra, do you mind introducing yourself? But before I do that, I want to give you guys the backdrop of how she describes her work. She describes it as surfing Anglican records for your Caribbean or African-American ancestry. Sandra, tell us about you, what you do, and how you help people and their families do these things. And I would love to get your observation from tonight. As you sit here and you heard the story of Peter and his awesome heritage, the story of Oklahoma and the undocumented but awesome history that was lost, what's your take on it, Sandra? Hi, Calvin. Thanks for having me tonight. I've just been enjoying um, listening to um, so many of your stories, so many of you who have 
gotten that bug and that passion to break the silence that was once imposed on our ancestors. And, and we have been past that mantle. I, I just think that the stories I've been hearing tonight is exactly the same um, the same kind of stories that I've been discovering um, from doing genealogy. And it doesn't matter what black, what communities you go in, um, you're gonna find that there's so many untold stories, stories that are laying dormant, stories that are told but are forgotten about. And so I do believe that um, my work has been to draw attention to the fact that we have to tell our stories. Like we cannot sit back and wait for others. And I've had in, in the years of genealogy, for example, I, I was at a historical society in South Carolina um, and they had created books from the US census before they were digitized. And I purchased the books and when I got home, I was perusing them and I realized that not one black citizen in the area was in, was in those books. And um, when I went back, I said, hey, you know, I bought these books and there are no black people. And she said, well, the people that commissioned us to do these books, they're not interested in black people. If black people want to know the history, I guess they'll have to do it themselves. That wow. stuck. Uh, it really stuck with me. Um, I had another case where I'm a member of the Church of God in Christ denomination. And our founder was quite remarkable having started that church as a former enslaved man um, from Tennessee. And quite renowned. He, and he was actually born in Shelby County. And when I looked at the books that they put out for their historical town's record, he was not mentioned. And of course I called and I asked, hey, what about Charles Harrison Mason? And I got the same response. Well, he's black. And I, and well, that's why we're, they're not gonna, they're not gonna put him in. And, and this is not 1950s. This is not 1960s. It's not even the 1990s, right? This is the 2000s. So um, I think that reinforced for me that the work that I was doing, the work that all of us are doing is really important, um, not just to us and our families, but to the world, to this country. Um, so Peter, um, that story about your, your, your ancestor who experienced what he experienced at, at, at West Point is a perfect example of stories that can lay dormant unless somebody shakes it off and go here, you know, we need to, we need to hear this story today. So that's what my work is about. It's about finding those, those stories within our families, talking about our unsung heroes, looking at the towns that we were in, some of them have disappeared. So combing the records, and telling those stories and hopefully getting them in writing, that would be the most effective thing. Um, digitizing what we can, um, documenting what we can, um, archiving what we can. So definitely resonates. Awesome. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you tonight. And I look forward to when we kick off the Southern Soul uh, Masterclass series, because I'm definitely looking forward to you teaching our families a workshop on how we can not only achieve black town history, but also family history to better support our African-American history. Tonight, Absolutely. thank you all for being here tonight. Southern Soul live stream. What you experience here tonight is what we do. A little quirky, a little eccentric, a little goofy, but we like to get to the message. 
we like to create a safe environment, an environment where people can come and share stories like Peter has shared about his family. The type of stories that we've seen tonight are the ones that we're going to continue to share. Next week, if this is your first time, come on back. We're here every Thursday. We're going to be talking about building family legacy with investing in financial strategy. We're going to talk about the things that, hey, people say, hey, I'm supposed to know how to do that. But sometimes people are not so comfortable saying, I haven't mastered that. One of the first shows I did with Dr. Green was newly retired. Now what? You know that topic. We're retired. We're supposed to know what to do. We're supposed to have it all together. But guess what? Sometimes we don't. But over here at Southern Soul, we talk about it. We break it down. And when we hear terms, I'm like, hey, what that mean? Because I'm from Texas. But I enjoy being here tonight. Thank you all for being here tonight. We're going to um, say goodbye to you guys with our um, local DJ, virtual DJ, DJ Afro Sheen. So thank you all for being here tonight. Look forward to seeing you again. Thank you for joining us at Southern Soul Livestream Talk Show. Join us weekly at soullivestream.com. If you're joining us live, we'll take a quick music break and then come back for a discussion with the audience.